Well, if you have a Bible, you can open to the book of Luke, and we are going to be this morning in chapter 19. We are starting chapter 19. We are uh, steadily trekking toward the cross uh, in the book of Luke here. We are not far away. Uh, in fact, we are just a couple of weeks from Palm Sunday where we are going to be looking uh, at the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem together. But uh, for this morning, we are going to see him coming into Jericho. And as you're turning there, uh, we can say with absolute confidence that God has always sought out sinners. And you could argue that in his perfect knowledge from even before time, God has been seeking out sinners because as we read the book of Revelation, we find out that even before the foundation of the world, he was writing the names of his people in the book of life. And you really see him seeking out sinners for the first time in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve sin against the Lord. Uh, he tells them not to eat from the tree, the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. And they eat from that tree. They transgress his law. And they become alienated from God. And this is what we see in Genesis 3, starting in verse 8. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, said to him, Where are you? So Adam and Eve, they hide away in shame. They run away in shame after they sin. That's what we so often do. But God seeks them out. He calls out to Adam and he asks Adam, where are you? If God did not graciously seek sinners in this way, nobody would ever be saved. Romans 3 says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. If God did not seek after sinners, then they would just remain hiding in the trees. They would remain alienated from God. They would be lost in sin in this life until they stood in judgment before God and then would be lost forever as they are condemned for breaking the eternal law of an eternal God. If not for the seeking grace of God, then all would truly be lost. But we praise God that he seeks out sinners, that he seeks them to the point that he sent his own son Jesus to come and to save them. In fact, this is the purpose of the incarnation. This is the purpose of Christ coming to earth in the flesh. This is the purpose of God becoming a man. He did it for the sake of finding sinners and redeeming them, taking them from the mire, placing their feet on the solid rock. And we, we see this in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 1. Joseph is told that Mary is going to bear a son. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And listen, for he will save his people from their sins. This is why he came, to seek and to save. John 3, 16 and 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And then in 1 Timothy 1, Paul says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And then finally, the Apostle John 
wrote in 1 John 3, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Again and again, what the New Testament writers are telling us is the glorious truth that God sent his son into the world for the purpose of saving people who were lost in their sin. This is the heart of God. And we will see in this passage this morning, as Jesus is still journeying toward the cross and it's getting ever closer, he's going to take a brief detour to change the life of a man named Zacchaeus. So let's read it there, Luke 19, starting in verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. I want to begin right there. I want to begin with the end this morning because it really gives us a theological framework for the passage. Uh, for everyone who knew Zacchaeus, it must have been shocking to see Jesus talking with him. And then it would have been even a step further in terms of shock and awe when Jesus says, I must come in and stay at your house, Zacchaeus. But for Jesus, pursuing Zacchaeus, inviting himself to Zacchaeus' house, that was not a shocking uh, decision for Jesus to make in his life. It was a natural one, because this is the nature of Jesus. It is the nature of Jesus to seek out and to save the lost. What does it mean for someone to be lost? I think a lot of times when we think of being lost, we think of being lost directionally. We don't know where we are going. I remember taking a road trip with a friend of mine when I was in college. We went to Winchester, Virginia. I know, a very exciting place to go on a road trip. Uh, but we went there because one of our friends was getting married. So we went to go to this wedding, and it was, uh, it was a good time. And then uh, the wedding ends, and we're driving home the next morning. And I was tired anyways, and so I fell asleep in the car. And my wife will tell you, it doesn't take a lot for me to fall asleep in the car anyhow. So we're coming from Winchester. We're trying to get back to Richmond, Virginia, okay? Key word there, Richmond. And I wake up from my little nap, and I, I notice a road sign. I thought, well, I'm, I must be bleary-eyed. I'll just give it a second. And then I see another road sign, and I realize we're getting closer and closer to Washington, D.C. This is not the direction we're supposed to be going in. So I say to my friend, I say, hey, man, uh, that sign says we're 30 minutes from Washington, D.C., we're supposed to be going home to Richmond. And he had zoned out because he was so tired that he had just completely zoned out and we were going in the wrong direction. And we were lost because this was uh, 2005. 
before everybody had a GPS on their phone, right? We had little flip phones, and we were college students, so we didn't have GPSs. What college student had a GPS in 2005, you know? So we didn't know where we were, what we were doing. We pulled off at a rest stop. We had to find a map because we were disoriented. We were lost, and we just wanted to get home. Our spiritual lostness is kind of like this. Sin takes us out of the spiritual home that you and I are made for, and it separates us from God. And we are spiritually lost. We, we don't know where we are. We might think we know where we are, but we've got no idea how dangerous it is to live a life in sin apart from Christ. So we don't know where we are, and we don't know how to get back. Much like my friend on the, the interstate that morning um, the scary thing about lostness is a lot of times people don't even know they're lost. In fact, I would say most of the time. Because Satan has blinded their hearts and minds to the point that they think everything's fine. They don't realize that they're heading in the wrong direction. That destruction waits for them at the end of that broad road of lostness. It's like Jesus talking about when he returns. He's going to return. It's going to be like the days of Noah and the days of Lot where people are just being given in marriage and, and, and people are planting and they're harvesting and they're going about their lives. They're going about their lives as normal because they don't realize they are lost. And so Jesus says he's come to do two things when it comes to people like this. He seeks them out and he saves them. The seeking part was already illustrated for us with three parables in Luke 15. So Luke 15, verse 4. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost." Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Jesus is the shepherd who leaves the 99 and goes and gets the one. Jesus is the strong pastor of the flock that places the sheep on his shoulders and he carries them home with joy in his heart. And then when he gets there, he calls together all of the angels, all of heaven to rejoice over the fact that a lost soul has been redeemed and has been recovered and that another name written in the book of life has been transferred over from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved son. In Luke 15, he, he goes on another parable uh, right after it. He says, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So Jesus is like the woman who is lighting a lamp and sweeping the house and looking for this one lost coin, looking for this treasure, searching with diligence. And when he finds the lost sinner, the heavenly hosts rejoice with him over the fact that another wayward soul has come home. And then the third parable in Luke 15 is the parable of the two sons. I won't read it. I'll just summarize it for us. Uh, if you remember there, both sons represent lost people. 
Jesus teaches that parable uh, to a crowd that's filled with sinners, kind of like Zacchaeus in this passage this morning, sinners that are very public about their sin, tax collectors, prostitutes, people like that. And then there's also Pharisees, the people of the religious establishment, the spiritual elite that are there. The lost people that are living in uh, filthy sin and everybody looks at them and goes, that's not a religious person. And then the religious people who are living in the filthy sin of self-righteousness. And he preaches this parable and he's got these characters in it. There's the younger brother who represents the sinners who have the public sins that are easy to identify. He takes his father's inheritance, wishes his dad dead, rushes off into a far country, blows through the inheritance, ends up longing just to be fed with the pods that pigs are eating out in the fields, and then he goes home. When he goes home, his father runs to meet him. He puts his robe on him. He puts a ring on his finger. He puts shoes on his feet. The fattened calf is slaughtered. There's a party, just like there's a party when the sheep was found and the coin was found. And in the father who runs out to meet that lost son, you see the heart of Jesus for those that are lost. The father rejoices because his son was lost and now is found. The older brother, he's stomping around outside the house in self-righteousness. He's angry that his brother has been accepted home. He's angry that his father has never thrown him a party. And the way that he treats his father shows he's just as estranged from the father as his little brother. But in the end, the father shows the heart of Christ to him as well. Because he entreats him to come inside. And Jesus was entreating the spiritual elite, the Pharisees, to forsake their man-made system of self-righteousness and to come inside by grace to God's feast, to God's party over redemption. And what this parable shows us is that Jesus seeks out all types of lost people, doesn't he? Lost sinners like Zacchaeus who can't keep right and wrong straight. But also lost self-righteous people like the Apostle Paul or like Nicodemus who think they don't need any help keeping right and wrong straight. Merciful seeking Jesus desires both to repent. He pursues rebels. He pursues legalists. He seeks them out. The saving part is the heart of Jesus' mission on the earth. He came to die for the sin of sinners so they could be saved. He came to rise again to conquer the sin of sinners so they would have eternal victory. He ascended to the right hand of the Father to intercede for sinners so they could be forgiven of their sin. And one day, He will return to defeat the sin of sinners and Satan and death once and for all. And all of the sinners that He has saved by His grace will live under His rule on the new earth forever. To save someone means you rescue them from harm. You pull them out of danger. And the rescue that Jesus provides is salvation from the danger of the wrath of God. God is justly angry over our sin. The Old Testament repeatedly uses the metaphor of adultery to explain our idolatry before God. This is how God views our sinning. When we love and worship things that are not Him, it is like we are cheating on Him. We're cheating on Him with idols that will never satisfy us. And so this sin makes us children of wrath and it places our neck in the guillotine of God's wrath. And it leaves us in danger of death. 
When I say in danger of death, I'm not just talking about being placed in, a, in, in the ground in a cemetery. We're talking about something much worse. We're talking about eternal hell. For breaking the eternal law of an eternal God, the, the punishment fits the crime. And so Jesus seeks us out in our lostness and he saves us from the consequences of our sinning that made us lost in the first place. This was the mission of the king of heaven as he came to earth. This is what Jesus came to do and it plays out in this passage. So let's look at the interaction with Zacchaeus. Luke tells us Jesus is passing through Jericho. Jericho was about 15 miles to the northeast of Jerusalem, about five miles from the Jordan River. It was the richest part of the region. Historian Josephus nicknamed it Little Paradise. And so, you know, if, if it was modern day, you might say, you know, we're going to take a weekend away to Jericho. It was a place that was passed around by the societal elites. Mark Antony had purchased it as a gift for Cleopatra. She sold it off to the Herods. And it was known for its palm trees and its sycamores, its cypress flower, precious oils were produced in the city that were renowned. The historian Alfred Edersheim said it was the Eden of Palestine, a fairyland of the old world. And because of its beauty and its attraction, you had this tapestry of really interesting personalities that would converge on the streets of Jericho. Travelers from Galilee, priests, that were there practicing religion and leading in religion. Traders and merchants from all the different regions, they had come there because a bunch of trade roads converged on Jericho. Criminals looking to make a quick buck off an unsuspecting victim in the streets. Political extremists, soldiers were everywhere. Politicians and public officials, religious zealots from various faiths, advisors to kings and queens, and a whole lot of tax collectors. And that is because Jericho was the tax-collecting uh, center for that region of the Roman Empire. Anything that came across the Jordan River was taxed in Jericho. And they collected Roman tax on all sorts of things. There was a poll tax that even the slaves had to pay. There was a 1% income tax. There was a land tax that included one-tenth of all grain and one-fifth of all fruit and wine. They taxed transportation on goods. They taxed produce. They taxed uh, the roads. They taxed being able to cross bridges. So there were lots of taxes. And so Jesus comes into this place, into the circus that is the city of Jericho, and there is this man there named Zacchaeus. And we learn he is the chief tax collector, meaning that all of the other tax collectors in the area reported to him. They would not just have reported to him, but they would have had to have given him a cut of their profits. And what that tells us is that Zacchaeus, indeed, as Luke reports, is very rich. It was a very lucrative business. Tax collecting was not sinful, right? And despite what you may think, it's really not sinful now either, okay? Uh, tax collectors were totally within their rights to do their job as long as they weren't ripping people off. In fact, the first time we see tax collectors in the book of Luke is in chapter 3. John the Baptist interacts with them. These tax collectors had repented of their sin, 
And this is what uh, John the Baptist says. They say, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. He doesn't say quit your job. He just says stop ripping people off. See, the way that the Roman tax system worked was this. The tax collectors would take your money and they would send it to Herod Antipas, who was the king set up over the region by the Romans. The Jewish people wanted their own king and Rome gave them a king. But he was a puppet king. Nobody respected him. The Jewish people didn't even like him. And so Herod would take the taxes that he received and he would send them off to Rome. And the tax collectors had a certain amount of money they were required to send to Herod, and then Herod would keep a little bit, and then he would send the rest off to Rome. Now, on the tax collecting end, up front, anything that the tax collector collected that was not required to Herod just went in his own wallet and went into his own pocket. So they would just jack up the taxes, and then they would line their pockets with the profits. So Zacchaeus had a network of guys that worked for him, a network of tax collectors who would then return to him and say, well, we sent our stuff to Herod, but we jacked the taxes up and ripped people off, and here's your percentage of, of the Ponzi scheme. You know what I mean? And, and that is how Zacchaeus made his money, and clearly he had made a lot of it. He was not some low-level grunt going around making people pay their tribute. He was not some lackey. He was the chief. He was at the top of the pyramid scheme. He had made a career through a world of backwards corruption in white-collar crime. And yet something amazing is going on with this guy in verses 3 and 4. He is seeking to see Jesus because he wants to know who he is. But, you know, if you sing the song growing up, I didn't get saved when I was 14, so I didn't know all these songs. But, you know, Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he, right? So I've learned it a little bit through the years. Uh, small in stature, he was a short guy. People were just smaller than anyways. The CDC says that an average male in America is five foot nine. In first century Judea, it's estimated that it was five foot five. And so he was short in that culture. Zacchaeus may have only been around five feet tall. So he runs ahead, climbs into uh, one of Jericho's famous sycamore trees, and he waits for Jesus to come by. Now, a lot of people make this the point of the passage. They'll preach this and they'll make the whole point, the idea that we need to do whatever it takes to seek Jesus. And I don't think that's the point of the passage, but I do think it's worth a sidebar. I, I love the tenacity of Zacchaeus. He's got two big hurdles in his way here, his height and a giant crowd. So he runs ahead of the crowd, climbs a tree. He's going to do whatever it takes to just get his eyes on Jesus. I think two people, or, or too often people say, I want to see Jesus, right? We sang an entire song about this in the 90s, over and over and over and over and over and over, right? Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Man, we just kept singing it, okay? There are some churches, uh, urban legends say, still singing it today. They just never stopped, just for 20 years, open the eyes of my heart. But as much as people might sing that song and say they want to see Christ, they're too quick to allow the obstacles that are in their path to remain there. Well, I, I don't have time to read my Bible. I, I just forget to pray. I, I just need to focus on me right now. Satan never wants your path to Christ to be clear. He always wants to throw a giant crowd in your way. He always wants to put a personal excuse in your way. Are you going to be like Zacchaeus? 
Because he sees these hurdles and he's just throwing them to the side. He, are, are you going to run ahead to find Jesus? Are you going to climb up a tree just to get your eyes on him? Will you put the things of this world on hold because you must know who Jesus is? Because what we're seeing in this passage here, Zacchaeus is running to a divine appointment he didn't even know he had. Maybe we ought to be more diligent about drawing near to God because our pursuit will take us to where God wants us to be. And that's before him. Surrendered. Ready to know him. Ready to be changed. So Jesus comes to the tree. He looks up. Tells Zacchaeus to come down. And I love this. He says, I must stay at your house today. Zacchaeus just wants to get his eyes on Jesus. He never would have expected Jesus to seek him out. That's exactly what happens. He looks up to him. He speaks to him by name. Which probably shocked him. And he invites himself over. All of this would have been a surprise to Zacchaeus. On a number of levels. First of all, he's a well-known boss of thugs. And he is an endorser of various types of thuggery. Right? And everybody knows it. This guy's got a reputation. Zacchaeus' career, no matter how lucrative it might have been in the tax-collecting world, made him an outcast to the religious culture of his day. And he likely would have accepted that. He would have known, this comes with the territory, right? I don't go down to synagogue. I'm not welcome there. And so he would have been very surprised that Jesus would seek him out and speak to him because most rabbis had probably avoided Zacchaeus his entire adult life. Secondly, Zacchaeus would not have expected Jesus to know his name. And then lastly, this demand that he must stay at his house would have dropped his jaw. I mean, it's one thing to cross a social barrier to speak to the man, but to go over to his house would be to accept his hospitality, to count him as a friend, to count him as a neighbor. The Pharisees would have slept on the streets before they went to that guy's house and stayed there. Understand that. Jesus was seeking the opportunity. And so Zacchaeus hurries down the tree and he joyfully receives Jesus into his home, but the people watching are not happy. To see Jesus go off and break bread with the godfather of the repugnant tax collectors was too much for them to bear. They couldn't stand that Jesus would go and eat with a sinner like Zacchaeus. And their grumbling is symptomatic of people who were raised in the synagogue culture to believe that men like Zacchaeus were beyond repair. Just, just relegate them to the grave. Ignore their existence separate from them, have nothing to do with them, they're destined for Sheol, just let them go. Don't call them your neighbor, don't have them over for dinner, don't even speak to them, steer clear. But Jesus has a different mindset. Because understand this, Jesus wasn't walking along the road that day and he looked up in the sycamore tree and said, who's this funny little guy up there? Oh, I remember making him, that's Zacchaeus. I forgot all about Zacchaeus. No, he, he, he knew He knew who Zacchaeus was. He knew Zacchaeus' name. He created Zacchaeus to be a shorter man. He knew Zacchaeus would run ahead of those crowds to see him. He knew Zacchaeus would be in that sycamore tree that day. He knew all the dirt that Zacchaeus did before he climbed up in that tree. And guess what? He was resolute in his purposeful mission to save this man's soul. He loved him. He didn't come to Zacchaeus and say, Zacchaeus, I'm going to come back in three weeks. Clean your act up. 28 days of rehab, whatever you got to do, go get yourself straight, 
And then I'll come back and I'll stay at your house and we'll talk about whether or not you can be saved. That's not what he said to him. He walked up to him and said, Hey, Zacchaeus, chief tax collector, famous sinner who's gotten rich off the backs of the hardworking people of Jericho, I'm coming over today. And look at what Zacchaeus says in verse 8. Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Contrast this with the rich young ruler we saw a couple of weeks ago. Confronted with his sin by Jesus. Confronted with his idolatry where he loved money more than he loved God. And Jesus told him, sell everything you have, give it to the poor and follow me. And Luke tells us that the man was sad because he was very rich. The rich young ruler did the math in his head and he decided, you know what, I'd rather have a lifetime of temporary happiness and an eternity's worth of sorrow than turn away from my sin and to give it all up and follow Jesus now and to potentially suffer in this world and then have an eternity's worth of glory. He chose a life of riches and an eternity of poverty and he went away sad. But Zacchaeus does the opposite. This is not a small thing. We can, you can read this, especially if you've read this before. It's easy to read this and go, oh, yeah, Zacchaeus, wee little man, wee little man, was he gives away half his stuff and got it. It's a big deal to give away half of your estate and then on top of that to restore what you have taken from people fourfold. This will break him financially. He, he's not going to be able to live the lifestyle that he's lived before this. Everything's going to have to change for him. And then think about this. He runs a network of cheating tax collectors. He's going to have to go to these guys now and he's going to have to say, hey, don't bring me those profits anymore. We can't rip people off like this anymore. How do you think they're going to react? I mean, his whole life is being flipped upside down here. This might have been the final day of his life that he was a rich man in worldly terms. But it's worth it to him. Jesus is worth it. And he becomes abundantly wealthy in spiritual terms. In verse 9, Jesus says salvation has come to Zacchaeus' house. And, and listen, that's not because giving your money away and restoring what you've taken from people, it's not because that earns your salvation. That's not why salvation came to his house. Instead, it was fruit of his salvation. Jesus saw the fruit of Zacchaeus' repentance and faith, and he looked at it and he said, salvation's here. I see how you've reacted to my presence, Zacchaeus. I see how you've reacted to my grace and my love for you. It's been to turn away from your sin and to take faith-filled action to show that repentance to the world. So salvation has clearly come to the house of Zacchaeus. He calls Zacchaeus a son of Abraham, which is important because he's saying that Zacchaeus shares the faith of Abraham, right? Zacchaeus He's been an ethnic son of Abraham his whole life. He's had Jewish blood in his veins from birth. He may have been a tax collector, but he was a circumcised Jewish man. But on this day, Zacchaeus became a spiritual child of Abraham because like Abraham, he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Like Abraham, he was free from sin and he was righteous before the Lord. Transformation had begun. And this is where you really see the heart of Christ. Remember, the names of the people of God are written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. 
In Revelation, John writes about the beast who will persecute the people of God. We talked about this a little bit this past Wednesday night. The beast represents the government. John says the people of the earth will worship the beast, except those whose names are found in the book of life. Revelation 13 says, Also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. Jesus knew Zacchaeus' name. He knew his name from eternity past. Zacchaeus' name was in the book. And throughout history, Jesus, like the hymn says, the old hymn says, he was on the portals waiting and watching. And when the day for Zacchaeus' salvation came, Jesus went and got him out of that tree and he brought him home. He left the 99 and he put Zacchaeus on his shoulders and he brought him home so all of heaven might rejoice over this tax collector's salvation. He swept the house and found Zacchaeus and celebrated his redemption with the angels in glory. He waited on the porch until he saw little Zacchaeus coming up over the horizon and he ran out to meet him and he covered his guilt and he covered his shame and he killed the fattened calf to rejoice. And Jesus did all this because that's what Jesus does. He seeks out lost people who are alienated from God and he brings them back home. And so I want to ask us two questions as we close up this morning. Number one, do you have a heart for Christ? Do you have a heart for Christ? Zacchaeus met Jesus and the grace of God changed Zacchaeus' heart and Zacchaeus had a heart for Christ. And we know he had a heart for Christ because he went from having a heart for, for money to having a heart that said, I'll let go of money. As long as I get Jesus, I will willingly loosen my grip on the treasures of this world. I'll let goods and kindred go if it means that I get to follow this rabbi, this shepherd, this savior. My freshman year of college, I lived next to the Cathedral of the Sacred Heart in Richmond. If you've ever been to VCU's campus, it's right there next to Monroe Park. And so when I walked out of the GRC every morning, which is no longer there, they, they plowed it over and built a better dorm that I wish I'd lived in. Uh, as I came out of the, my, my money paid for it, right? So as I came out of the GRC every morning on my way to, to, to Hibbs Cafeteria to eat some terrible food, I would look up to my left and there it was written on the, the face of the cathedral, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I would see it every single morning. We know Zacchaeus loved Jesus because he kept his commandments. We know he had a heart for him because he obeyed him. You can say you have a heart for Christ, but is their fruit worthy of repentance? Zacchaeus had the faith of Abraham, and that was evidence in his works. In the book of James, James says, So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from works, and I will show you my faith by my works. If you have a heart for Christ, then you will live as the hands and feet of Christ. So do you? Is your love and faith shown in your life don't settle for a version of christianity that is not christianity at all at least not biblically where you mentally agree 
about who Jesus is, but you never obey him. You never love him. You never count him worthy of your repentance. You don't get down out of the tree. You don't even run ahead of the crowd to see him. Salvation does not come to the house of people who have no faith and love in their hearts for Jesus. Do you have a heart for Christ? Second question. If the answer to the first question is, well, yes, I believe I have a heart for Christ. My second question is, do you have the heart of Christ? This might be the first time we've heard Jesus say in the book of Luke, he's come to seek and to save the lost, but it's not the first time we've seen it. He called another tax collector named Matthew to be one of his closest disciples. He, he, he healed the man with the withered hand, much to the chagrin of the Pharisees. The sinful woman that showed up at the Pharisee's house in Luke 7, and he commended her faith. Right? All throughout Luke, we've seen him seeking and saving sinners. And so the question is, does your heart reflect the heart of the Savior? Do we love sinners the same way that Jesus loves sinners. I wonder if we would have walked by Zacchaeus on that day. I wonder if we would have walked by Zacchaeus because we were just too busy on Instagram, right? Scrolling. Too busy on Facebook. Scrolling. Getting involved in some ridiculous political conversation with some guy you went to chemistry with 30 years ago. Why are you talking about the Supreme Court with him? What are you doing? Why? It's a waste of our time. And all around us, we got people who are in danger of the wrath of God. Do you have a heart for them? Would we have missed Zacchaeus because we were too busy listening to our favorite podcast, listening to our favorite playlist on Spotify? Maybe we would have been thinking about where we need to go next. Would our focus on ourselves... And on our circumstances have kept us from seeing Zacchaeus. Listen, I think we've established Zacchaeus had a, a divine appointment that day. He didn't know about it. Jesus knew about it. He, he was on Jesus' schedule for the day. It was written in there. Zacchaeus, sycamore tree, 1.30 p.m. Whatever. You know what I mean? Divine appointment. But Jesus has ascended to heaven now, and until he returns, he's left us to be his ambassadors on this earth. He's left us to be the messengers of reconciliation, spreading the good news of the gospel to the end of the earth. And I think a lot of times, busyness and fatigue and anxieties and fear of rejection, fear of awkwardness, they cause us to distance ourselves from our biblical mandate to be evangelists that have a heart for sinners. We have to stop forgetting. We have to get our eyes up off of this earth, off of ourselves, and look around and to see people with the eyes of Christ, to see people with the heart of Christ, because until the Lord returns, it's on us. He's using us. He could have used the angels. He could have raised up rocks. But it's God's plan to use the church to spread the message of Christ. It's God's plan to use the church to bring people into the kingdom. God's got divine appointments set up this week. He's going to save people. He does it every day. Do you want to be involved? Do we want to be involved? Do we have a desire in our hearts to be a tool in the hands of Christ in divine appointments? 
If they say anything about our church, I want them to say that we have a heart for sinners. And I want us to lead them to the Son of Man who is seeking to save them. I've said before that, you know, we, we have this building and, and we are, uh, you know, hopefully we're, we're getting pretty close to paying this bad boy off. It's going to be awesome. Excited about that. You say, well, what do we do with this building? It's a big building. What are we going to do with it? Let's just be real. I mean, like, look around this morning. We got more seats than we need, okay, at this moment in time. So what are we going to do with this big building? Well, I, I've talked about this before. I'm going to say it again this morning. I think that we have this, this opportunity to take our church building and say, this is going to be a community center. And we're going to have a basketball league here, and we're going to have a giant egg hunt here, and we're going to let the Seaford Elementary School parents use our parking lot to pick their kids up. We're going to do all of these things because we want the lost sinners of our community to say, yeah, I don't go to that church, but man, those people are nice. Man, those people are loving. Man, those people are generous. Man, those people are selfless. Because in trying to leave our doors wide open to the neighborhood of Seaford and beyond, what we're saying to the world is we have, we want to have, we're trying our best to have, by the grace of God, the heart of Christ. And we want to show him to you. Because he will take you down out of a tree and change your life in an instant. So we want to show him to you. Will you ask Christ to give you his heart? To not just have a heart for Christ, but have the heart of Christ for lost sinners. To ask him to make you his hands and his feet. I hope that will be your prayer. I hope that will be our prayer as a church body. Father God, we thank you for a merciful, seeking Savior. We thank you that Zacchaeus was not left in that tree to figure out life on his own, to figure his own way out of the mess that he had created as this crime lord, this tax-collecting um, mogul. You got him out of the tree, Lord, and changed his life You've done that with many people in this room. I pray you'll do it with others today, God. If there are people who do not have a heart for you, they don't love you, they don't read the Bible, they don't really pray, even if they call themselves Christians, Lord, I pray that they would examine themselves this morning. If they're living practically like an atheist, then let's give up the charade. Call them to faith, Lord. Call them to true repentance and faith this morning. That they would become a child of Abraham the way that Zacchaeus did. I pray, God, that you would provoke the hearts of lost people who are hearing this message this morning to repent of their sin and put their trust in you. And I also pray, Father, that for our church body, you would give us the heart of Christ. Lord, I want to notice lost, sinful people a lot more than I do. Make me less concerned about my agenda and my busy schedule. Lord, make me less concerned about what I'm going to eat for lunch. Make me less concerned about the obnoxious level of soccer practices in our lives right now. Lord, there's all these things just pulling at our time. 
And at the end of the day, I think Satan rejoices in the distraction of the church as people live in grave danger of the flames of hell. Lord, don't let us fall for the ruse. In the same way that Zacchaeus took every hurdle out of the way in order just to lay his eyes on Jesus, I pray we would take every hurdle out of the way to try to help other people put their eyes on Jesus and to grab a hold of him by faith and to be saved. And they might end up in our church. They might end up sitting in an empty seat in another church, Lord. We just want them in the kingdom. Use us, Father. Use our, our lives, our time, our money, our building, our community. Everything you've given us, help us to steward it, Lord, with Christ-like hearts to love sinners. We pray this in Jesus' name.